Thiago, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am your host, and I've got um, I've I got a tough one today for you today. So we'll we'll, we'll get into it in a second. But uh, again, let me remind folks that we are listener supported radio here at WBAI and WPFW, and we need your support for these uh, not just for these programs, but for the station in in general, the stations in general to to stay on the air. So uh, I begin each show by by asking imploring, you know, begging, I guess, <laughs> to some extent, that those of you who listen to this program on these stations, that you go to your pledge lines. If you're listening in New York City, then I really wish that you would go to 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org and make a donation. Uh, become a, a BAI buddy. Um, Make a one-time donation, a time donation, whatever you can do uh, that supports this radio station. I would greatly appreciate it. And if you do it during this hour and during this uh, this program or in the name of this program, you can actually make a donation anytime you want and uh, and ascribe it to to any given uh, given program. And look, if you're already a WBA buddy and you want to increase that by a few dollars, then then pledge that increase to uh, to Resistance Radio and. And again, I would greatly appreciate it. If you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, that pledge line is 202-588-9739. Or you can go online for WPFW at WPFWFM.org. Follow the prompts, uh, hit the donate button, and use the variety of means that they have available to make a donation to their station as well. It is how we do what we do. And look, and if you're listening on a w, a, a different um, Pacifica affiliate station, be it the internet or, or however you listen, support your um, your platform. Support the platform. Look, we do put this show up uh, as a uh, as a podcast, and you can listen to the program anytime. But you're you're gonna, still going to hear me <laughs> in those podcasts, uh, asking and soliciting uh, donations to these radio stations, these fine radio stations that that are listener supported radio. They do represent free speech radio, as as you hear with each with each program. And we are in a constant, uh, constant bind. We rely almost entirely on your contributions. So that's why we ask, and that's why we ask often. Um, so, uh, so that's that. Okay, what's the show about? Well, the Supreme Court has decided to hear a case that is challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act. Look, I don't come up with these names. <laughs> I use the acronym ICWA. Um, it was passed in 1978. And I want to give a little bit of foundation on what the Indian Child Welfare Act is. Now, again, keep in mind, this comes in in 1978. That is really at the time that the last Indian boarding schools, residential schools, these prisons that children were ripped from their homes to, to be sent to, ripped from their families, their communities, their nations, and sent to, to basically um, be ethnically cleansed. And, and let's... I, one thing I got to do, I oftentimes get hit with this this idea or this, you know, this phraseology that you puts genocide and culture together. So we say, well, yeah, well, it was kind of cultural genocide. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. There is no such thing as cultural genocide. Let me explain what genocide is again for those who perhaps have, have you know have not been paying attention. Genocide is are any of the following acts. Individually, in whole, or in part, any of the following acts. One is killing people, killing a people specifically based on uh, on their their identity, killing a group of people. That's genocide. Causing harm, f- 
physical, sexual, mental, whatever that harm is, intentionally causing harm. And of course, what, the, what really a lot of this is about is a deliberately inflicting on a group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Now, and it goes farther. So that's three, three things. The, the, the other two parts that are, that is, again, internationally recognized as, as constituting genocide is <clears throat> preventing births, sterilization, you know, not, uh, leaving people in unable to reproduce. And of course, the, the, um, uh, the final one is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, re residential schools represented all five of these things. I mean, all five. I mean, look, there was rape, there was murder, there was neglect, there was sterilization. There was obviously the, you know, the, the, the stealing and kidnapping of children. And of course, all of this was about deliberately inflicting on conditions on the group to bring about our physical destruction. I mean, so anytime I hear somebody say, well, residential schools represented cultural genocide. No, they didn't. It represented genocide. All five examples, all five of, of the, uh, the recognized actions that constitute genocide. And any one of them do. You don't have to, you don't have to check all five boxes. And you know, the fact that residential schools did, I mean, it, it just shows you how over top that was. So residential schools exist for over 100 years. They come to an end in the 70s. Now, what happened in the run-up to the 70s was an increase in utilizing foster care and adoption. Uh, it, look, the entire era of residential schools was about taking children, seizing children, which normally the idea of, of, of seizing children based on a need or in, in, uh, you know, neglect or whatever else, this idea of, of taking children has usually been a state's right. Yeah, that's a state's right. Not only the, state, the taking, but the placement of, of, of kids. That's a, usually a state right. Now, for 100 years, the state may have been somewhat involved. In, in many cases, they, they, there was actually uh, boarding schools, Indian boarding schools, that were not federally run, but were state run. I'm, I'm talking to you from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, and they famously had the Thomas Indian School, which was a, which was a state run boarding school. So the states played a role in this seizing of children and the placement of children, but the feds, by virtue of this, uh, you know, of the residential school era, which was funded by by law, something like the they called it the Civilization Act, which which began some uh, funding money for the assimilation of native kids. Uh, so it not only funded but but essentially created the conditions that allowed uh, these these boarding schools to exist, and of course. That's just the U.S. side. Everything the United States did, Canada did the same. And, and they did it in much the same way. But I do have to remind people, for all those who've been following the, the revelations of these unmarked graves, these mass graves, these, uh, you know, th these burial sites that, uh, that were covered up, and I mean literally covered up and metaphorically covered up, the United States represents Canada times three. There were three times as many boarding schools there were th over three times the population of native kids that were, that were ripped away from their families for these things. So, but again, that's the residential schools. And what happened was towards the end of that era, there was a, 
well, actually, and during much of the time of the residential schools, there was also this idea of placing those children from the school, taking some of those children, and giving those children to, to white families. I mean, you can literally buy native babies. That's, that's been something that went on for a long time. But during that era, there was this idea of taking children that would never go back home. They would be, you know, especially if, if they could any way, shape, or form suggest that these kids were orphaned. They would be allowed to leave some of these boarding schools, and they would be uh, taken in or hawked out, sold to white families. Now, we're not just talking about An Angelina Jolie here. I mean, this, uh, this idea that, you know, or Madonna, these, these, these rich white folks who are going to lift these children out of poverty and, and, and give them a better life. Look, there was some of that. I mean, there were affluent uh, white folks who wanted to have their, their, their token Indian, Indian baby. But there were also some people who were pretty abusive. The, the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine was not about residential schools. It was about foster care. And it was about the abuses. It was about the neglect. It was about essentially the slavery that was associated. I mean, this, this was like human trafficking. I mean, well, not, I'm sorry. It was human trafficking. So that's what the boarding school era was moving towards and had moved, moved well into. So when ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, was proposed, this was the federal government saying, wait a second, we're seeing this abuse, and even as we're ending the, the boarding school era, we are seeing how many children are being ripped from, you know, not still being ripped from homes, but even from the remnants of these boarding schools and being placed uh, in, into, uh, in, into white custody, essentially. And Native people had been making plenty of noise about this. Look, we're, we're, we're coming out of, uh, coming to our own on civil rights and, and that kind of stuff and human rights and that kind, of, that kind of thing. So ICWA took the state's rights away from seizing Native kids, specifically Native kids. And they also changed and put a priority that native kids should be placed. And, and again, this is the federal government taking authority from the states, but still retaining that authority themselves and putting a larger emphasis on placing kids within extended family, certainly within the community or with other native families. So there was a, this was a direct policy to stop the flow of native kids uh, into, into white custody. That's what, that's what it was about. Now, so what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is there's still a complete failure to recognize that we have the sovereign right to raise our children. And I'm, look, I'm, this isn't about saying, but wouldn't that child be better off being raised by a wealthy white family instead of living in poverty in our territory? This isn't about what's good for that child. And I'm not saying that shouldn't be a consideration, but this is about genocide. Let me remind you, <laughs> Section C of the, of, or I'm sorry, Section E, I, the, the, the final um, element of the international definition of genocide says forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. That is genocide. Well, that's what this is. And so why is that? It isn't just because we are racially different than white people within the, the umbrella of the United States. It isn't just that we're ethnically different. We are legally different. 
we are distinct people in many ways, not just colors of our skin or the language or our dress or, or, or what we do for recreation or entertainment. No, this isn't about cultural distinction. This is about human beings being a different people than y'all. Yeah, and I did say y'all. <laughs> but see, the federal government never does that. It never, it refuses to recognize our distinction, our sovereignty. And therein lies the problem. So what you have here and what's being challenged by Texas, Louisiana, a couple of other states, and some individuals, is whether ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, violates the Equal Protections Clause of the, of the US Constitution. Is it creating a specific law based on race that denies states' rights that are normally in place for everybody else except for Native people? Well, <laughs> the short answer is yes. It does, and that's the problem. In fact, it may be the problem with every piece of legislation that the United States has passed regarding Native people. Everything from, again, the Civilization Act to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Every one of these laws that has been passed that doesn't recognize our sovereignty and our distinction as people that are somehow different than, than Americans, US citizens, any one of the laws that, that does that essentially could be challenged as a violation of the Equal Protections Clause. And that's a problem. And look, we're not the only people to go through this. This is, has been a big issue in Hawaii because as there have been some programs that were supposed to help Native Hawaiians <clears throat> survive the housing shortage, the, you know, everything that the United States did to Hawaii in terms of making everything more expensive, making it almost un, uh, unlivable for, for the indigenous people there. Everything they've done, including, including you know, recognizing certain lands that were essentially not the United States, doing housing programs, any, any program that was geared towards Native Hawaiians, the, the claim was that all of those could be challenged by, again, by this Equal um, Protections Clause. And that any policy or program that benefited a people by race was somehow illegal. It was unconstitutional. And, and especially if it somehow was a federal program that undermined um, the rest of state law, or even if it was a state program, if it somehow operated separately than the rest of the state programs, then, then it was a problem. In fact, this was the argument that was made to try to convince Hawaiians to allow the Interior Department to designate them as another Indian tribe, or more accurately, eight, 10, or 12 of them. They, want, they wanted to take all Native Hawaiian people, and, and we're talking about you know, probably a million people, and give them a designation as a Hawaiian tribe. So born to the laws of the United States. And ignore the whole thing that, you, that, that Hawaii is an illegal occupation, uh, that it was a coup against the, the, you know, the, the Hawaiian kingdom, that the Hawaiian kingdom still has a right to exist. Ignoring all that stuff. And, 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 by, and this was Obama doing this push, by the way. It was the Obama administration that was really trying to push this idea that Hawaiians could be made into Indians by, by, by that definition. And then they would have that protection that would uh, be able to 
fend off any of these equal protection clauses. Well, here's newsflash. Being deemed a tribe band or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States is not leaving people immune from, uh, from the challenge. And now you've got, again, Texas, you, Louisiana, you've got a couple of other states and, and some other you know, big-moneyed interests that are going to use this really right-wing Supreme Court to undermine laws that in many ways were attempts at making a fix to the genocide that Native people have experienced at the hands of the United States, and, and I would argue still experience. So, I mean, this, you know, we, we hear this all the time about affirmative action programs and stuff like that. I mean, e equal rights, equal voting rights protection, the voting rights protection law. I mean, that, the, you know, the, the, the court said, well, that's not necessary anymore. Ever, uh, all voting rights have been secured, so we, we don't need to make sure that black people have an equal right to, to vote. Of course, we see it every, all the time that, no, there's, there's still work to do here. You know, just because slavery was outlawed in, in the 1860s didn't mean it didn't continue. It did continue. In fact, Native people would continue to be slaves for, for decades longer, especially in, in more remote uh, parts out west. But Jim Crow, you know, some of the, you know, the amount of lynchings that took place after the abolition of slavery, it's incredible. So we know that just because you know, a law gets passed doesn't fix the problem. And oftentimes, if the law is, doesn't specifically address the problem, look, we have, we have a problem with missing and murdered indigenous women. This is a big problem. We have a, we have a problem with women, native women in particular, um, and, and sexual assaults. If you're a native woman, you are, you almost have a 50% likelihood of having experienced a sexual assault in your lifetime. I mean, five times greater than anybody else in the United States. And, and, I, and the numbers will fare out in, came, in Canada as well. If you're a Native woman, the likelihood is you're going to experience some level of, uh, of sexual assault. And 70% of those crimes committed against Native women are by white people, white men, white men. Let's, let's say what it is. But white people in general, white men. We are forbidden, even when we have a court system, a jail system, a police force, we are forbidden from prosecuting white people for crimes committed against Native women. Now, in the Violence Against Women's Act, one of the, the previous iterations of it, they did a pilot program where they were going to allow certain qualifying uh, territories that had what the United States, or the federal government, would deem you know, um, adequate an adequate judicial system, meaning it like theirs, uh, an adequate due process system like theirs, that they would allow non-native men, uh, criminals, uh, suspects, to be prosecuted in tribal courts. They would allow it. And it was a pilot program. Well, the problem is, again, the failure, failure to recognize our sovereignty. See, you wouldn't need to do a pilot program that would be challenged in court. Because let, let's face it, the first time a white man who might have a family with some affluence behind him would be prosecuted in, in a tribal court, they could sue not only the tribal court, but they'd sue the federal government for allowing an American to be prosecuted in a non-U.S. court. So, so unless the United States makes the tribal courts theirs, 
And I don't mean just recognize full faith and credit. I mean make it theirs. Then, then it's open to all kinds of challenges. So, so there's, there's part of the problem. But see, the United States wouldn't, what they wouldn't do is say, okay, look, if you are on a native territory, you are no longer under the jurisdiction of the United States. You have entered their sovereign space and you are subject to their laws. They will never say that. In fact, they, they still say that a white man is not subject to our laws. And these, these kind of challenges go on all the time. Look, there was a, I think there was a family dollar or dollar general case or something like that that, that took place down in Mississippi relating to some of the, these same kinds of things. So there is not a recognition, in spite of the fact that, that there has been an absolute failure to ever document when it is Native people became subjugated by the United States. Why? Because it didn't happen. There is no point in time that the United States can say, well, this is when you became ours. Well, wait, wait a minute. This is when, well, not just when, but how. How did the United States get to a place where they could claim that we were U.S. citizens? Now, I understand. In 1924, they passed a law declaring that all Native people were U.S. citizens, but they knew that wasn't true. And they knew that they couldn't legally do that. You can't impose this. I mean, that again, that's genocide. That's like removing us from our people. I mean, that's the definition of denationalization was stripping away somebody's national character and imposing the national character of a dominant group upon them. Well, that's exactly what that would be. And that definition of, of denationalization was 10 years before the Indian Citizenship Act. And when the word genocide would be coined and, and would essentially replace denationalization, it was clear that if you were creating the conditions that would, make, that would bring about the destruction of a people, that's genocide. Well, if you strip away our national character, and, and look, it would be different if we said, we want to be. Can you make us? Can I, can, I, can I file an application and become a U.S. citizen? That's not what took place here. And the United States knew it. And how do I know they knew it? Because in, 10 years later, they passed the um, Indian Reorganization Act, where, again, they tried to change all Native governments into little U.S. Constitution-like governments. And they created a new definition. They def that's when that definition came about that said, a federally recognized tribe is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States or subject to the laws of the United States. But they knew even then, even after 1934, that not everybody was. How do I know that? Because today, even as Native peoples are fighting to get some of their land back, and one of the means for doing it is called the fee-to-trust system, which means you take land out of U.S. fee title and it's placed into, federal, into a federal land trust for the use and enjoyment of Native people. It still doesn't really transfer title, but that's what this, that's what the closest thing that the United States has in a broad-based way for Native people to reclaim land is this fee-to-trust system. But the law has been interpreted, and clauses have been added to it that says, if you were not under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934, then you cannot utilize the fee-to-trust system. You cannot reacquire lost lands. So you're saying that if we weren't subjugated in 1934, we can't get lands back? Wait, I thought you said you made everybody citizens in 24 and then redefined everybody as subject to the United States in, 
1934. But you knew it wasn't true. And that's why you keep trying to create these little twists and turns. I mean, look, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, I've talked a lot about that later, lately, and that's, that's still an issue. That is still something that is tied directly to this idea of federal recognition, tribes, bands, or nations of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. If you're not a federally recognized tribe, as far as the federal government is concerned, you can't do gaming. Well, I don't believe that's necessarily true, and we've seen that play out. Look, the, the Longhouse up in Aquasasi, they, they ran a, um, a gaming enterprise, and, and the feds tried to prosecute them, and it all got thrown out of court. So, I mean, uh, we know that their laws are not as solid as they, like, as, as they purport them to be. But this ICWA, because like with every one of these other laws, refuses to recognize our distinction, our sovereignty, it does ultimately open itself up, especially when you get a very, very conservative Supreme Court like you like exists right now, for states to say, the federal government is violating states' rights. Remember that whole violating states' rights thing? That's what, they, what the southern states claim the Civil War was really all about? Yeah, the state's right to, to enslave human beings. And this state right that the states, you know, these states are uh, challenging is their right to rip Native kids away from Native families and Native communities. They are fighting for the right to still rip Native kids from Native communities. And they're going to argue, and you know what? They're going to make a compelling argument that, and, and they'll cite all the perfect examples of a, of a, an impoverished territory where our prospects for the future are very limited and how damaging that is to a child. And so the solution is to rip that child out of there and let, and, and let a normal white family raise them. In the meantime, you ignore the fact that the poverty that you are saying that the, these children need to be ripped out of was created by you. And it's created by states and federal government. And, and of course, it's created by corporations, churches, any number of things have, been, have contributed to the abject poverty that most native territories have become. We didn't become poor because we didn't know how to live well. <laughs> we lived well long before any white people showed up, folks. Let's, let's, let's be clear here. So as I'm listening, and I, and I got several calls this week. And I did a few interviews. I did several calls this week, and, um, and I got several calls about this challenge to, to ICWA. And I'm going to tell you, I was never a fan of ICWA. But I will say, I do recognize that the Indian Child Welfare Act did stop some of that flow. Not all of it, but it did stop. And I, let me give it credit. It stopped a lot of that flow of Native kids being ripped out of our territories by the states, by the counties, by these you know, CPS, these Child Protection Services. And in fact, it actually forced the states to work with native governments on child protection. And, and in many, and most of, most of the time, that relationship had decent resolution. And, and I'm not saying great, because again, the biggest problem that we have in our territory that contributes to everything from suicide rate to substance abuse to missing and murdered indigenous women to teen pregnancies, uh, you know, high school dropout rates, uh, conviction rates, all of this stuff really can come down to the, the poverty that, uh, that has been inflicted, caused on, on Native territory. And look, when we finally do something that can generate revenue, 
or economy, like tobacco or fuel sales or gaming, the states and the federal government fight like hell to, to shut us down. We're, look, we're in a major fight over billions of dollars today with New York State. Billions of dollars. I mean, that's this is our reality anytime we do something. And look, we don't have the same system of public finance that the counties and municipalities and states and the federal government. We don't tax our people. We don't tax their income. We don't tax what they buy. We don't tax what they sell. We don't tax you know, what, what they leave to their children. We don't tax, any, we don't tax anything. What happens is in, in the, the territories do have businesses that are operated essentially by their government. I mean, there's, there's some revenue flow that comes through, uh, through licensing and fees and that kind of stuff, but, not, but they're not taxes. And in fact, we have to make a point anytime there is a territory that, that develops, you know, certain, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm specifically talking about Seneca Nation, but in general, we have to make a point to avoid characterizing any means of public finances as taxing our people because we know what that means. And we know that as much this idea of trying to mirror what's being done on the outside has never played well for us. In fact, we, we get hit with the argument that we've, that we've been assimilated. Well, of course we, we have. You have spent hundreds of years trying to alter us. You robbed our, you took 85% of our children and you cut their hair, you forbid them to speak their language, you, you, you abused them, you, you raped them, you neglected them, you killed them to kill the Indian, save the man. And then you continue the process by ripping kids away. And like I said, some of these kids, some did go to affluent families, but some went to very abusive foster care systems that were nothing short of human trafficking. I mean, I, I, mean, I think about somebody, somebody successful like, like Buffy St. Marie, who was raised by white people. Now, she didn't hate these white people who raised her, but she went through one hell of a lifelong struggle to connect to her native identity. I mean, that is a terrible thing to do to a child. I don't care how much money you throw at them. And, you know, and this whole thing comes down to this, to this question. What is in the best interest of the child while ignoring what's in the best interest of the people? Because I don't know that poverty is a, is a good enough excuse to terminate a legacy, to terminate an identity. And that's what residential schools did. That's what this adoption system did. That's what foster care did. And look, I don't want to say did, still does. Still does. Like, like I said, I, I know I mentioned this on a, on a program before, but I watched a show on, on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper speaking to, with, with some folks from, from the Canadian side over the residential school, all, all the while ignoring that the United States hasn't even begun to reckon with its policies of residential schools, foster care, uh, robbing, robbing children from native territories and putting them in, in white families, ignoring all that. And in the, in the, in the very end, he asks the, the woman that, that has been a big part of this, uh, you know, of, of this you know, specific um, piece that they did, 
whether she has reconciled her feelings towards the Virgin Mary. Like, that's the question? Whether we've been able to reconcile our faith, which is exactly what was jammed down our throats in residential schools, in these, in these, in the, in these adoption systems, in these foster care systems. Like, that, that, that somehow, if, if, if she had what she claims she had, that, oh, well, it's okay then. As long as you've been able to reconcile that the, that the assimilation program has been fully effective to where you're, you're good with your Virgin Mary again, or for the first time or whatever. I'm, I'm sorry. This angers me. And, and you know what? This failure to recognize sovereignty is what we're all witnessing in, uh, in Europe with Russia invading the Ukraine. And look, I'm glad that you know, Trevor Noah and, and, and others are, are pointing out that the reason the world is responding the way they are is because it's white people that this is being done to. I mean, nobody, nobody raised this level of, of, you know, of concern when black nations and black people are being forced to, to be refugees uh, due to violence. No, but this is white people doing it to white people. It's kind of like the heroin problem, right? Until white people started having, you know, losing their children to the heroin problem. Now, all of a sudden, it was all about treatment. Before that, it was all about prosecution and crime and punishment. So you, I, I'm glad that it's being recognized. Look, and I condemn. Look, two of the interviews I did this past week was, uh, was on Russian-sponsored uh, media. It was, I don't know if it's Sputnik Radio. And I made sure in both interviews, I mentioned how this issue this failure to recognize sovereignty is tied directly to what Russia is doing to the Ukrainians. And I'm pretty sure it, it couldn't be edited out. Now, I could stop short and not do, do those interviews altogether. And, and, and maybe at some point, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know where I stand on that at, at this point. But when I'm being interviewed by people who understand the issue, who are concerned enough about this challenge to, to what's going to happen to our children going forward, and ultimately are concerned enough, I mean, because it, it was brought up in the interviews. Couldn't this impact things like gaming law? Yeah, absolutely. Because as states become more emboldened about what they can challenge the federal government over, and look, let me back up. When the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was, uh, was passed in, in 1987, or, yeah, 1997, 87, or yeah, there was a provision in that law that said if states refused or failed to negotiate in good faith with the native um, entity that, that wanted to pursue gaming, that we could sue that state in federal court and force a, a gaming compact or, or, or force our way to doing something, to doing gaming in that state. Florida challenged it. And that provision was stripped away. So there is no recourse for a native, uh, at least not in the law. I'm not saying that there isn't recourse practically or, or you know, in a policy standpoint, but in the law, there is no recourse for a native territory that, that a state wants to you know, bully. There, I mean, and I'm not saying federal court has ever been a great re recourse for us. We're going to see that play out with the Supreme Court over this challenge. This is all about a failure 
an absolute failure to recognize our distinction. Look, the United Nations passed you know, they passed the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples back in 2002, I think. Maybe 2007, I'm sorry. United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia voted against it. Why? Because their concern was that this might change international law. So what they had been getting away with in terms of ripping kids away from our families and our communities and our homes might be deemed problematic if the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples were enforced. So that's why the United States voted against it. They, they opposed the idea of us asserting sovereignty over our land and even over our own people. And I don't mean asserting sovereignty over our people, but, but recognizing our people had the right to do certain things in our territories. And so that's why they voted against it. But the rest of the world just sits there and, and remains quiet as the United States and, and so many. I look, they passed some sort of, you know, censure against Russia for what they're doing to, the, to, to Ukraine now. But the UN is such a farce that when it comes to Security Council, you, the, Russia has, has veto powers. And, and so when they try to do it at the Security Council, it went nowhere. The problem is there is no enforcement for the superpowers to be held accountable. And that's what we're seeing here. And those superpowers aren't just the federal government. There are, there are egotistical elite men and women in every state that pushes their influence over Native people. And our children are still a target for that. If this challenge is successful, and again, with a, with a six to three majority in the, uh, with the conservatives here, if they're successful in gutting the Indian Child Welfare Act, there's no question that any law that can be interpreted as a carve-out for Native people can then be, be interpreted as a carve-out based on race and that, that it violates the Equal Protection Clause. And that's why, you know, I, I get frustrated because I don't think enough Native territories, enough Native people understand that the federal government is not going to look out for us until they recognize our distinction. And, and it's, it's why I speak out against voting in their elections. It's why I speak out about, you know, the, all the praise when somebody, if a Native person gets, you know, gets put into a federal position, whether elected or otherwise. Deb Hallin is the, as the head of the Interior Department. She works for them now. She doesn't work for us. Now, will she look out? Well, we're seeing. We're still waiting to, to see if, if she will do the right thing with the Interior Department as it relates to some of these gaming conflicts, the ones that Seneca Nation is going through. She hasn't exactly jumped up to deal with it yet. And she understands that, that conflict because she ran a gaming institution, a gaming establishment for the Laguna Pueblo in, in New Mexico. So we, our distinction is so important. You know, and that's why I say that after 100 years of residential schools, we don't need an apology. And, and writing checks to survivors or families of survivors or, or whatever the, the plan might be doesn't address the real problem, 
and, and or it does, actually, it, it doesn't bring the children back who died. It doesn't take away the harm that was inflicted on, uh, on people who are now kind of aging out. Many of the people who went to these residential schools are, uh, many have died already. Not just the ones who died at those residential schools, but the survivors. Yeah. How crazy it is that, that somebody who went, goes to a residential school is not considered an alumnus, they're considered a survivor. But paying survivors or the families of survivors doesn't address what was done to us as peoples. And that's, that's a major problem. Look, I think the crimes committed against children should be prosecuted. And I think they should be, though there should be reparations paid for the crimes committed against individuals. But there also has to be some level of restoration of our autonomy and of the lands that we lost during that 100 years and lands that we continue to lose. This is a major problem. You know, and we continually get distracted or siloed. We say, okay, we're going to deal with Indian Child Welfare Act as, as this problem. We're going to deal with gaming as this problem. We're going to deal with violence against women as this problem. We're going to deal with uh, environmental issues. No, they're all related. They're all connected. And they, our positions as Native people are oftentimes undermined by our own governments, by our own Native governments. Why? Because there is this, again, when we talk about things like misinformation and disinformation, there are those who tried to cast, part of it because of the Indian Re Reorganization Act, but th there are those that try to cast native governments as part of the system of federalism. Same on the Canadian side. They create these band councils, which are like municipalities in Canada. Well, they're trying to do the same thing in the US. They're trying to say, well, we don't exactly know where to plug in tribal governments in be with, with counties and, and municipalities and, and states, but we know it's below states and it might be below counties, but it's still part of that same system of governance, of federalist government. No, it isn't. It's distinct. And I don't care if we're talking about governments that were reconfigured during the Indian Reorganization Act or not. To suggest that we as peoples and our governments are, are systematic, systematically subjugated in the United States system of governments and jurisprudence and all that other stuff is wrong because you can't, you can't tell me when that happened. You can't, tell, you can't point to the event. You can't talk, uh, talk to, uh, you know, point to the, to the treaty. And, and, it's, and it's not, you can't just say, well, we have a law that passed that said you are under our jurisdiction. Well, that doesn't count. Why doesn't it count? Because we didn't consent to it. You know, remember those documents, your founding documents that said, you know, that the government's a just government gets its authority through the consent of the governed? We didn't give that to you. We never gave you that consent. That's, again, part of the problem the United States has with the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Because it calls upon free, prior, and informed consent to pass laws, practices, policies that impact our people. Look. If Texas and Louisiana and these others that are challenging ICWA are successful, if they're successful at claiming that ICWA violates states' rights in the Equal Protection Clause, then they have free reign to commit genocide. Let me say it again. Genocide, one, the, the fifth definition of genocide 
in the international community. Look it up. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. If you take Native children and place them in white families, in white homes, that is genocide. It's not cultural genocide. It's genocide. If you deliberately inflict on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, that's genocide. It doesn't mean you just have to kill us. It doesn't mean you just have to sterilize the women or men. It doesn't mean that you, know, that you have to rape our, our people or beat our people or do some other psychological harm to our people. Those are not the only criterion to be characterized as genocide. Taking our children is one of them. Deliberately creating the conditions that will cause, about, cause our physical destruction is genocide. So I, I really can't, you know, I can't speak any more strongly than what I'm saying here. And, you know, and look, I don't know, the challenge is, is problematic because the solution that was, that was you know, written up was, was the Indian Child Welfare Act. It didn't solve the problem. It didn't place authority of placement of children with us. It just took it from the states and, and, and made, it, made it a federal law. So it, the federal government took that authority. That doesn't solve the problem for us. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't prevent some of what the state, what states have been doing prior to that. It did. But it, it is not the right fix. It's like a pilot program where you allow certain territories to prosecute white men raping women, Native women. If you don't recognize our sovereignty, our right to assert jurisdiction as, as a, and I don't mean just band councils, tribal, I mean us as people. So jurisdiction is a very legal, uh, you know, a legal term. But if you're not going to recognize our right to keep our children, our right, and I don't mean just a family to keep a child. I don't mean just an extended family to keep a child, but our, our nation, our community, our, you know, our whole distinct people. Because we've seen Baby Veronica was a perfect case, you know, where in spite of ICWA, a Native man had his child taken away by wealthy white people. We also know that the U.S.-Canadian border has been a, a way for Native children on either side to have been adopted out, again, trafficked away from Native communities, away from Native people. And you know what? You know, somebody, they asked me, well, is this only for, uh, you know, for tribally enrolled people? Look, if you're a child and your parent is Native and you're being denied that identity, regardless of tribal enrollment, that is a big problem. And look, you know, we can get into a debate about how problematic it is with, you know, is race mixing a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Well, it's only, it's, it's primarily a bad thing if a mixed race child is going to be used as a political football. And right now, it isn't just 
a native child is being used as a political football in this challenge going to the Supreme Court. It's our sovereignty. It's 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 all native children. In fact, it's every federal so-called protection that the United States dreamt up to partially address the genocide that the United States is guilty of uh, inflicting upon Native people. And look, this is, this is again, one of those areas that I talk about. This is a part of that unique racism that Native people experience. And, and, and I know it's, it's tough. I mean, I, the first time I say something like, well, this is white people doing this, all of a sudden, I get white people who go, oh, you called me white. And, and I, you know, I get into a debate over the mascot issue because I said, look, you're a white community who wants to call yourselves Indian. Oh, see, now you have to play the race card. I'm not playing the race card. You're white people. And you're using a race-based mascot for your entertainment and your, your, your amusement. I didn't bring up the race card. You did by, by, by exploiting and appropriating our images. We have a very difficult time because racism is so embedded in European culture. I mean, like I said, it, it was just remarkable to, to watch this outpouring of outrage over white people being forced to be refugees uh, from, from Ukraine. And the news broadcasters couldn't help themselves. They said, you know, this is different than Africa. Because these are white people. They, had, they, they barely were able to contain themselves when, when talking about how this is worse because it's Europe. Because when you did this to Native people, it was okay. When you enslaved black people, it was okay. But when angry Putin, crazy angry Putin, inflicts this kind of, you know, harm... And in these kinds of conditions, on, on Europeans, on white Europeans, I mean, look, even as the refugees are trying to get out of Ukraine, black people who are among them are still being persecuted. That's how prevalent racism still is today. I mean, and, and listening to news broadcasters who say, well, I'm trying to choose my words uh, you know, properly. No, you're not. You can't even hide your, your racism in, in your reporting. You are unable to do it. And herein lies the problem. Because white supremacy is behind this challenge. I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not crazy about ICWA. But it's white supremacy that's behind this challenge of ICWA to the Supreme Court. This isn't about states' rights, necessarily. This is about the failure and the refusal to recognize that our subjugation was never legal, is still not legal, and will never be legal. So the federal government tries to create these little fixes, like ICWA, that still refuse to recognize that we have the right to keep, raise, and educate our own children. This is, this is, where, this is where the problem is. So look, I want to I want to thank you guys for for listening to the program. Uh, look, and I realize that almost every conversation kind of turns the same direction here, because that's what our lives are. You cannot separate Indian child welfare from 
the poverty that exists in our territory and our struggle to come out of that poverty with things like gaming or our battling over taxes related to tobacco or fuel or violence against women and missing and murdered indigenous women and the, the rape culture. And, and of course, you can't separate it from our desire to protect not just our land, but the land, because the ownership issue is, is also problematic. Because historically and culturally, we say that our future, our future generations are the ones who hold the title to the land. And not just our future generations, the future generations of life. That those of us who are living it today, we cannot alter that land or somehow deprive future generations of creation from that land. And that's just a fundamentally different view than what white people and frankly, the rest of the world, what, the, what a capitalist society has adopted. It, it is just a fundamentally different view. And because we can't reconcile those differences, just like the United States can't reconcile the fact that we predate their existence and that our culture has a right to continue throughout the U.S., ex the existence of the United States. That's the problem that we have. That is what we're facing. So I make no apologies for some of these issues all coming together to the same place. Yes, it, it really does come back to, to white supremacy, the failure of you know, imperialism, capitalism. It really comes back to some of those same things. So I, again, as I go out on an anti-capitalist note, <laughs> I'm going to ask those of you to, uh, to support both WBAI and WPFW. Uh, I'll give out the, the, the pledge lines for, for WBAI. It is 212-209-2950. That's the number to call to make a donation to this fine radio station and do it in the name of this, this program. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. If you're listening on WPFW in Washington, D.C., a, a, a city that I'm just so pleased to be, uh, to have airtime in, especially when we're dealing with some of these federal processes, the, you know, the Supreme Court and the like, then go to your pledge line. That's 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go online to WPFWFM.org and make your contribution in the name of this program to these fine radio stations. And again, if you're listening on an affiliate um, that I may or may not be aware of, <laughs> frankly, then support that affiliate station as well. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of the Pacifica family, and I'm glad that some stations have picked up the program. But I ask that you do support those stations in the name of this program. This is John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.